Hey guys, this is Josh, and welcome to The Listening Room. Listen to what the flower people say. to The Second Stage Turbine Blade, the first album by Coheed and Cambria. This is going to kick off a series on Coheed and Cambria that I'm doing where I'm going to go through all of their albums and we can listen to them together. Um, I wanted to start with Coheed and Cambria because they're my favorite band. They've been one of my favorites for a long time and uh, my absolute favorite here for the past couple years. And I figured I'd have a lot to say about the band and about their albums as a whole. So it's a good starting point. Um, After this, I don't think I'm going to be going through band's entire discography, but what a way to go ahead and start off the listening room, eh? Um, Coheed and Cambria, they're kind of hard to define. I would call them kind of prog rock, but maybe not as grandiose as some other prog bands uh, lately and even, you know, since the 70s. They they have uh, bits of metal, they have bits of emo, bits of pop thrown in there, and even sometimes folk. Uh, I would say that they have complex melodies with a pop sensibility. So even though they have these huge complex song structures, they are still grounded in the melodies that I just absolutely adore. So um, like I said, they're my favorite band. I love these guys. So I'm going to heap praise on them this entire series, though hopefully I won't be um, fooled completely by my rose-colored glasses. But I encourage you to take a look with me. Get this album, get all of their albums because they're all good, and listen to it. And then come back and listen to the podcast and we can go through them together song by song. Let's take a look at what I liked and what I I didn't like. And uh, you can join in the conversation by contacting me. And um, who knows, maybe I'll take a look at some notes later, some emails that I get um, where we disagree. That's okay. This is art. And uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Somewhat. I wouldn't say 100% of the time. There are things I would say are objectively bad in art, but maybe I shouldn't go down that road just yet except to say that, hey, if you don't like this band, cool. I'm not saying you have to like them. I'm, I'm just saying that you should because they're great. <laughs> but anyway, so Coheed and Cambria, let's uh, take a look at the second stage Turbine Blade. Um, before we begin, I do want to warn you that Coheed and Cambria, up until their last album, all of their albums have been a part of one huge saga called The Amory Wars. So each album in and of itself is a concept record where they tell a story, but then most of them, their first six albums were a part of one huge five-part story where two albums were two different uh, halves of one part. 
it gets kind of complicated, but they each tell their own story and it's it's part of a much larger story called the Amory Wars. So what that means for you is that when you're listening to their music, when you're listening to their songs, what they're saying in a particular song isn't necessarily going to be one-to-one with your human experience. So they're not going to have songs about calling someone back. They're not going to have songs about uh, closing time at work. They're not going to have songs about strictly about, you know, a girl that you fell in love with who spurned you. You know, there's not going to be things like that, but they will have very human themes and things that we can relate to. Um, the right, the primary writer of this band, Claudio Sanchez, who plays guitar and does vocals, um, he has gone on record as saying that the songs generally start with something that is going on in his life excuse me, something that is going on in his life, but um, he puts them into the story to kind of put a barrier between him and the listener. So you get kind of a filter. He's not going to write um, an emo song particularly about him and what he's going through and his emotions. He's going to create a character who goes through a somewhat similar situation or maybe a an exaggerated situation so that you can feel the emotions that he's feeling. So so it adds a layer of complexity there. I'm a bit of a nerd, and so a huge, sprawling sci-fi story like this really um, just gets into me. I love it. You know, I love hearing things like this. Um, it's pretty nerdy, you know, like a huge Lord of the Rings type epic story. I love it. Um, not everyone's going to love it, and that's okay. But I did just want to throw that out there, just warning you, this is part two of their five-part series and it drops you in in the middle of the story. Well, maybe not the middle, but part two of the story. So there is a part one that comes before this. This That is actually their sixth album. So it's more like a prequel. It's kind of like Star Wars, where it drops you in. A New Hope is episode four. This is episode two of their five-episode series, The Second Stage Turbine Blade, hence the second. Um, now, a little tidbit about the name. Um, Claudio's father worked in a production a factory where they produced turbine blades. So in a way, this album is dedicated to his parents. The main characters in this album, whom the band is named after, Coheed and Cambria, are modeled after his parents. And one of the main characters through the series is named Claudio after himself. Um, so there are allusions like that all over the place, but it is one big sci-fi story. Okay, some of the stats on this album is that it was originally released on February 5th, 2002 through Equal Vision Records. It has since been re-released on September 20th of 2005, and it included some unreleased bonus tracks. Now, I originally listened to the album without those bonus tracks. Uh, that's how I first heard the album when I was young, and since then, I have purchased the re-release, and I've listened to the bonus tracks. We will be taking a look at those very briefly at the end of this it's primarily going to be about the main body of the album, not necessarily the bonuses, uh, especially because it's one long story. I don't necessarily want to um, throw other songs into the mix. Um, one other thing about the story is that 
I don't even know the entire story. They've they've released albums, they've released comic books. Um, there are tidbits that they have from different interviews about the story itself. But I don't think anyone knows the entire story and all the details except Claudio himself. Uh, and and they're apparently in talks with Mark Wahlberg to make a movie of this thing. So maybe we'll all know better then. Um, I do own. Some of the comic books, I own a novelization of one of their albums as well. So I know a bit of the story, but I'm not going to delve too deeply into the story, except where it pertains to what the characters are going through in each song, so you can really relate to what's going on in each song. Uh, don't want to delve too deep. You can go ahead and search online if you want to. Again, I'd warn you, it this rabbit hole goes very deep. I am nowhere near the bottom of that. Uh, I've not been through that looking glass, but um, it is there if you want it. Just an extra layer of complexity about this band and this album. The band lineup, as I've said before, it consists of Claudio Sanchez on vocals and guitar. And then there is Travis Stever on the guitar as well. We've got Michael Todd on bass. He also does some vocals and Josh Eppard on drums and piano for this album. Um, this again, it's the first album by Coheed and Cambria. They had another band before this that consisted of mostly the same people. Um, and so even though this is the first album by Coheed and Cambria, they have sort of had other EPs with a very similar lineup but this was their first release when they were signed to an actual record company. One last thing before we dive into the album is just I want to talk about the album as a whole. As it is their very first release, you will hear throughout the course of this series that they progress a lot in their different styles, in what they like to add to their music, and especially in their production quality. Now, this album it does sound, and I'm probably going to use this word a lot throughout the course of the review, it sounds very raw. The production is very raw. Now, I've since learned from different DVDs where they talk about this album that before they were signed to Equal Vision Records, they recorded this as a bunch of demos for their next album that they were going to put out as a band. When they signed to Equal Vision, they gave them the demos, and Equal Vision loved these demos so much that they went ahead and mixed and mastered it and just put it out like it was. They didn't have to do much. So what that means is these are glorified demos. Now, there could be a number of reasons why they did this, you know, to save money since the band already had them. Maybe the band really liked these versions of the songs and they didn't want to re-record it. Maybe they just wanted to go out into the road. There's a number of reasons why you would do something like that. It doesn't matter. This album was recorded as demos and was put out by the record label because they thought it was that quality that high quality to be released under their name. So uh, that that's definitely a good thing for a bunch of demos for a fledgling band for their first release. It's pretty cool. But as you're listening, you will hear the raw sound. Um, not that it sounds like it was recorded in a garage or anything that far. Not that it sounds necessarily like a punk album, but it does have kind of that early emo sound where um, it it's not quite as polished as it could be. Not everything's on time. Not everything's in 
pitch. The vocals aren't doubled and chorused, and there's not um, background vocals over every uh, inch of it, background harmony vocals everywhere. Not necessarily. It, do, it does sound a lot more raw and less produced than kind of your typical release. But this is the only album that's like that, so I would encourage you to get past that because the record label saw something in these songs and something in even these um, performances of these songs. So I'd encourage you to to look for that as well to um, uncover it. I'm not saying that the rawness is a good thing or a bad thing. Personally, I like a bit of rawness in the music. I don't like it when the music sounds like it came from a computer frankly. I like it when it sounds like a bunch of guys playing in a room. Um, Or girls, excuse me. I just mean a bunch of musicians, a bunch of people playing in a room. And uh, that's what this album sounds like, primarily. Um, Of course, there there are different effects that are put on different things. But um, anyways, I am waxing poetic, and we should probably go ahead and jump into the album. Last thing before we do is I want to give you kind of a little um, intro to where we are in the story. I found this on Wikipedia, and I'm not sure where it came from because it's not in the liner notes of the album. But I think it's a good intro to where they're dropping you. And so again, with Star Wars, they have their title scroll to kind of get you caught up into where the story is. This is kind of that title scroll. And uh, it's going to knock you over the head with some of the terms that they use. But I digress. Let's go in. Husband and wife, Coheed and Cambria, are used as the centerpiece to enable Supreme Tri-Mage Wilhelm Ryan's attempt at destroying his arch-rival mage, Mariah Antillerea. Due to a memory swiping years ago, the couple are led to believe that their former lives have now come back to haunt them. They're told by General Mayo Deftenwolf, Ryan's right hand, that they were long ago implanted with a great threat to Heaven's Fence, the Monstar Virus. A virus with the ability to turn its host, Coheed, into a being powerful enough to drain the Keyworks energy sources to spark Armageddon, while their dear old counterpart, Inferno, was given the only means to unlock it. Through more lies, they are led to believe their children have genetically acquired a mutated form of the virus, the Sin Star. This new strain only requires its host to mature to a certain age and has no antidote, unlike the Monstar. Their children cannot be saved, and time will not side with them. Coheed and Cambria are faced with an unimaginable dilemma, to murder their own children or face Armageddon. Track one, second stage turbine blade. What an intro. I mean, this is just great for the story that Coheed and Cambria are about to tell. This is uh, just a fantastic opener in my eyes. Uh, It's eerie. It's kind of ominous of what's going on. You're not quite sure. You hear the turntable start up. And other bands have started their albums with a turntable and something playing from a vinyl record. But I think especially in light of what the band is trying to do, is trying to tell you a story here, I think this is a great epic kind of opener with the pops in the vinyl with the um even just the piano instrumentation itself the melody that they use i think is just such a great opener it's it's nice and simple but um 
the lo-fi sound of the vinyl record makes it seem like there's so much more that's about to happen. I, I just think it's it's the perfect intro for an epic story. All right, now we hit track two, Time Consumer, the first full band song on the album. And it starts out um, with a great drum sound. Now, like I said, this album is pretty raw. They're glorified demos in a way. Um, I listen to this album often, but it struck me when I sat down to listen for this podcast, how it starts out with a drum sound that doesn't sound so raw. You have your thumping bass drum there. You have a thick snare going on. You can hear the reverb of the kit. It sounds really good. You have full, rich instrumentation when the clean guitars come in. You can fully differentiate Claudio's guitar from Travis's guitar, from Mike's bass groove, from each of the different um, pieces of the drum kit. Each instrument has its place. It's just such a great intro for this song. Then the vocals come in, and that's where you start to hear the rawness of these recordings. The vocals don't sound like they've been um, touched up, you know, and spent days on getting the perfect vocal sound. It sounds like you threw Claudio in a room and threw up a mic and maybe played it back a couple of times so that he could do some harmony vocals over it, and you just went with what you had. Because I think he has such an emotional range as well as uh, a musical range. You can hear the emotion in his voice. He's pushing and pulling along with the song. Notice when he starts out, he's singing... um, in kind of a mid-register form, and then he jumps up to a higher register and starts yelling a bit. Now, if you've never heard Coheed and Cambria before, this might be a bit off-putting. He has a much higher-pitched voice. Maybe I should have said that when we started out, because it's a very distinct thing about this band is Claudio's high-pitched voice. And it's gonna stay that way, so if it gets annoying, I'm sorry, but I love it. I think this guy has such a great range. Um, It's really good. I will say this album he probably has in a much higher register than other albums that he's done. So it's not going to be quite this high later on. So continue listening. I I would encourage you to, to listen to their entire discography. That is a distinct thing about this band. But the emotion that he conveys in the songs, I think just speaks volumes. Throughout this entire song, you hear him get real quiet, and then you hear him yelling, and you can hear in his voice that he means what he's singing, which is amazing because he's singing the story that he's written. Um, You can hear as the chorus comes in that there's some delay on the vocal, and that changes it up a little bit from the verses before it, Um, gives you more of a feeling of a chorus when that comes in, um, when he's singing Maria, my star, Matthew, goodnight. Another thing that I noticed 
is with the vocals coming in in the verse, that's when the distorted guitars come in as well. And these distorted guitars, again, I think it speaks to the rawness of this album. They're a lot fuzzier than what I'm used to hearing. And that causes them to have a bit less definition than most major releases nowadays. Um, you don't get this wall of guitar sound. You get this real fuzzy, um, almost Jimi Hendrix kind of a sound that sounds, frankly, like a guitar amp. It doesn't sound like it's coming through a computer. It doesn't sound like it was perfectly digitized so that you can hear it when you want to hear it and hear everything else as well. It, it kind of sucks up a lot of aural space. Now, that being said, since the song starts off with a clean guitar, it is definitely a direct change. You can see the differences once they hit that stomp box and go into the distorted guitar. And that's another thing that I notice about this song and about this album in general is that they tend to work in extremes with their guitar tones. Either it's really clean and nice and neat, or it's real thick and fuzzy. It's just an interesting thing to note. For me, there wasn't much of an in-between of a little bit of distortion. It may be here and there, but for the most part, they're either going full speed ahead or they take it way down and go into a breakdown. And you hear that in this song after they come out of the choruses and they really start to calm down before going into another verse. I think Josh's drumming here as well is distinct. He really fills out the songs. If you listen, if you play it back and just listen to the drum patterns that he uses, he changes with the different parts of the songs. It would be really easy to just play kind of a four on the floor through most of the song, but he really finds where he can slip in different fills and where he can really make it feel like a song instead of just the drums having the backbone of the song and keeping time. He really tries to make these fills, this certain way you play the song, this is the song on the drums, not just these are the different parts that you string together. Uh, I really like the synth lead as well that comes in. I don't know if I'm remembering this incorrectly, but when I was younger, I don't remember the synth lead being there. I, I might have like downloaded a demo of this song first, but after I was older and I purchased the re-release, the synth lead really stuck out to me. So maybe it's just um, I was a dumb kid and I didn't notice it, and then listening to it again, I did. Who knows? But I like that synth lead. It's, again, a nice raw synth sound. It doesn't um, ping back and forth between the left and the right ear. It's just right there in the middle, and it's carrying that lead line. It sounds very much like, oh, um, you pulled out a synth, pushed a couple of buttons instead of going through for hours to find the particular sound. It sounds like they just picked something and went with it because that's the demo. And I love it. I think it sounds great. I think it's the perfect little lead line to just take over when everything else is coming in. Another thing about Coheed and Cambria, I think that every instrument has its place. So in this song, listen to the way that Claudio's guitar and Travis's guitar play off of each other. Uh, it's really great. This is something that Coheed does so well, in my humble opinion, is that Claudio finds kind of a rhythm, kind of a the backbone guitar of how to play the song, of how he's written the song. And then Travis finds every little place that he can play a different riff that will play off of what Claudio's doing to make the perfect song. 
listen just to their particular guitars and how they play off each other, and it's just beautiful. Also notice the unconventional song structure, that it's not just verse, chorus, verse two, chorus, bridge, chorus. You have a verse and then a chorus and then a verse and maybe a solo, then maybe a chorus, then maybe a bridge, and then maybe another solo into kind of a channel of the verse going into a completely new type of chorus. It's a little bit different, um, and they play with this a lot throughout their entire career. We'll see other songs that are much more complex, but this is the little taste that it's not kind of the same things repeated for this song and for most of their catalog. Now, after the solo in the song, you hear these background vocals that, that I love, listening to it again, hearing them uh, hum this tune and hearing all the reverb there. They're just barely there. You have to notice. I'm going to go ahead and play that clip so you can try and listen in to hear this, these vocals growing and how it's just a great crescendo back into the chorus. All of this fits together so well. It's rich, it's complex. All these different little pieces come together to make a great song, and you can focus on a different instrument every time you listen to the song and still hear something new. Now, on to the lyrics of the song. As our um, initial title scroll said, this album is about Coheed and Cambria, the two characters, the husband and wife characters, and it starts off where they are tasked with murdering their children. They've been told that if they let their children live, that they're going to bring about the end of the world. So this song is about them making the decision to murder their children. Pretty dark. <laughs> That's quite a dark way to start off your first album. But that's what these guys are doing. And it's, and it's in stark contrast to what the song itself is doing. It doesn't sound like a particularly heavy song, especially with the soaring vocals from Claudio. But um, the lyricism is very dark. Let's listen to some of these lines. Debate to understand that we all have a flaw, then fail to represent your life as you know it. So here, they say that their children are flawed that they have this flaw, that they're going to grow up and destroy the world. And they're debating that because their life doesn't show it. Fail to represent your life as you know it. it. It doesn't look like these small children can be the people to bring about the end of the world. And that's contrasted against the chorus, which is them tucking their children into bed. Maria, my star. Matthew, good night. You know by law when you'll be forgiven. The decision has already been made. They have poisoned their kids. Their kids don't know it, but they put them to bed with poison running through their veins. And then the end of the song is the stalling, the inevitable stalling because they don't want to make this decision. It says, now, wait, here, when will you believe me? I'm merely asking you to help me. When did I say to murder? Wait, now, here, please hear me out. Time consumer, time consuming, consume me. 
they want the time to consume them so that they don't have to make this decision, so they don't have to live with the fact that they have made this decision, that they have poisoned their children and by morning they'll be dead. Now, if we step back a minute um, and delve into the story, they've poisoned their two youngest children, Maria and Matthew. Their two oldest children are out in the evening, Claudio and Josephine. We're going to pick up the story on the next song with Josephine and her betrothed, Patrick. So let's jump into track three, Devil in Jersey City. thing I have to mention about this song is that intro. Um, it's Claudio in a very high-pitched voice laughing and then saying Shibuti. That's a reference to the previous band that they were in together called Shibuti, right before Coheed and Cambria. You can go ahead and check them out. They have put out a couple EPs. Pretty good stuff. Not quite as good as Coheed and Cambria. Another theory that I've read online is that that is also a reference to the young children, Maria and Matthew, playing a game with their parents. And so you get this idea that they are playing around with their parents, Coheed and Cambria, while their parents have this secret that they've just poisoned their children. So it's kind of an endearing intro to the song. It's it's kind of funny with Claudio making uh, these high-pitched noises. But uh, the song overall, this is the pop song of the album. Um, it was the single. They have a music video for this song. Um, it just jumps right in after that um, little intro with the chugging, palm-muted guitar going in, kind of that uh, metal emo sound that carries through the, the rhythm guitar on the song. Um, the guitars, they still have this bit of fuzz to them. They're not quite as compressed as most guitars nowadays. Um, and Josh's drumming on this song is a bit more simplistic. Now, that being said, especially at the end of the song, he does definitely get to uh, show you some of his chops. And let's let's go ahead and listen to that. Let's just jump forward and hear what he does. So as you can see, he's no slouch, which tells you that the the more simple drum patterns that he uses on this song were because the song is a lot more simple. The way they've written the song with the chugging guitar, the very, very simple rhythmic guitar, um, was a more scaled back, not quite as complex until you hit kind of the second part of the chorus. Again, the complexity of the song structure doesn't quite give way to, oh, this is the chorus and this is the verses. It's, it's kind of the second half of each of these choruses where the guitars really start to go crazy and the drums come along with them. Now, speaking of guitars, while Claudio's doing more uh, simple rhythm guitar work. Travis is just having a field day over with these solo lines coming through on the right side. I mean, just listen to it. I love the riff that he uses in the verses and the pre-choruses. I started learning it on guitar back when I was in high school, and I remember someone hearing me play it, and they were like, oh man, is that like Guns N' Roses? What is that? I was like, no, dude. It's Coheed and Cambria. But um, I, I love that, that little riff that he does. But all throughout the song, 
he fits himself into the cracks of each of this song. Um, even sometimes just using a harmonic kind of sustain, just making a noise with his guitar, that fits so well. Uh, because it would be a much more simple song if it was just Claudio and his rhythm guitar. Travis really helps to add that complexity, to add another layer of melodies on top of everything going together. Now, this song, speaking of melodies, has a lot of layered vocals. There are different background vocals that come in and out. There are harmony vocals that sometimes they'll just emphasize one line. I think it's great. And if you listen closely, they're not always on pitch which just goes with the whole um, sound of this album. It's not perfect, but in a way, that's what makes it beautiful. It's not fine-tuned. It was just them allowed to express themselves melodically however they wanted to. Another part of the vocals that's pretty distinctive about this song that we'll see continuing through the rest of the record are the screaming vocals. They're very dirty and very gritty, and I can't tell heads or tails what they're trying to say when they start screaming. I needed to pull out the lyric booklet and take a look at that. And there's actually some interesting lines, we'll see it on a couple other songs, that the lines that they're saying are pretty important to the song. Um, so it's pretty interesting that they're hidden within these real dirty kind of screams. One last thing is that the bridge, the breakdown, I say bridge, it's more of a breakdown where everything pulls away. They do that same guitar extreme where they go from the big, uh, chunky, fuzzy guitars to a nice clean guitar sound and they play around with that and the the interplay between the guitars and the bass is great on that little channel where it first starts out. All right, so let's jump into the lyrics of this song. This is another bloody mess of a song. It's about the assault of two of the characters, Josephine and Patrick, and they're driving to Jersey City. So the title refers to a gang that's in Jersey City in the story, and they're called the Devils. The Devils are who basically uh, just beat the crap out of these two characters and force them to go home. So this entire song is about the bloody assault. Patrick gets knocked out and then eventual rape of Josephine. So it's pretty heavy stuff. And it, it, this song particularly fascinated me when I was younger, when I realized that such an upbeat, happy sounding song could have such dark themes. And it's very um, contrasting against the lightness of the music itself and the darkness of what the song is talking about. Now, if you listen to my introduction podcast, you know I don't particularly like strong language, but I'm not completely averse to it. There's some lines here in this song uh, which are pretty interesting. It's kind of funny, but I think they actually serve the song well. The first line with some strong language is pretty simple. It's talking about the corner boys who fuck shit up. That sounds like quite a throwaway line. But if you think about it in context, that this is a gang, this is a street gang, they're just a, a dirty, gritty, ragtag group of people. So I think it fits very well that they're using these throwaway, strong language 
to describe them because that's the type of people that they are. Because they don't do this throughout the rest of the album, Claudio seems to pick his words um, pretty carefully. So when they use such a throwaway, strong phrase like that, I think it's really to emphasize who these characters are. So I think it actually works. The other one is in the chorus, and at first glance, this seems like a pretty dirty song. It sounds like one character is talking to another, will you follow me home? And then later he says, will you f*** me back home? That sounds really nasty. Like, why do we need to hear that? But in the context of this song with the assault going on, what's going on is that Patrick is saying to his fiance Josephine, he's saying, if we make it out of here alive... If we actually get through this, if we get past this, I wasn't able to protect you. Is life still going to be like it was? Are we still going to be betrothed? Will you follow me back home? And then later, will you give yourself to me? Will we still be man and wife after this? Will we ever get past this moment if we make it out alive? So... I think it's a poor choice of words. I don't like (laughs) the words that he used in the chorus here, but I think it does have more meaning than a simple, like, teenage, I really want to have sex with you. (laughs) And with that, we'll go to track four, Everything Evil. consumer before it comes in with this nice big drum sound you can really feel that kick as josh is playing it and i think overall in this song they really capture the low end very well if you listen to the bass grooves through the entire song there's this nice bass rumble that follows through the entire song um mike isn't really playing the higher frets he keeps it low and nice and thick it's a nice bedrock to the two guitars that are going on And I do have to uh, eat my words here about what I said earlier, where the guitars on this album usually play in extremes. That's not so much the case with this one. It starts off with that nice, clean guitar line. It's a nice, fast line, which is quite a contrast to kind of the vocals and everything else that's going on. It's in stereo, so you hear it in both ears, which is really cool. A little bit of delay on uh, one of the ears there. So it, it's it's nice and full. You can You can hear it all around you. But uh, they also come in with a little bit of distortion, emphasizing those hits there with the beginning of the song. So it's it's really nice. All the different pieces are falling into place for this band. You can stop and listen to each individual guitar. You can listen to the bass. It's It's got its place there filling out, like I said, that rumble of the song as well as the drums playing in. Um, they do a lot with this song dynamically. They pull back in certain areas and they push forward. They play with some silence. It's not quite as full as some of the other songs. It's not quite as layered, but it still has that complexity to it. Like I said, the the guitar riff that they're using is a pretty fast guitar riff. It's interesting to me that it is palm muted 
and clean. It's not trying to take over, but I think it's still kind of not quite steals the show, but it definitely captures your attention with what's going on there. I think it doesn't steal the show for one reason in particular, and that is the vocal melodies that are going on. Now, this is really interesting. They did this a bit with Time Consumer, but I think Claudio's really finding his own sound with this song as well, and it's something that happens particularly on this album and the next, not so much as it goes forward, but one of the specific things about uh, this album and the way that Claudio's writing is that he's writing these lines of dialogue specifically in this song, but he's writing these verses in such a way to where he doesn't rhyme and the lines themselves don't quite fit together rhythmically like most songs do. He's not fitting the lines into a specific pattern with his melody. He's kind of just, he has these lines that he's written and he's singing them over the guitar parts of the song, which is really interesting to me because he doesn't seem to be shackled down by a specific melody. And at the same time, it's still very catchy because of the way that he emphasizes certain words and certain lines. It really sticks in your mind still, even though it doesn't rhyme, even though not the same lines can't be repeated melodically over different words. So it's really cool how he still manages to capture your attention and keep it there, and you can still memorize the song after a couple of listens, even though he doesn't try and fit the words into the same melody. It's it's something I find very unique about this band and some of their earlier work. As I mentioned dynamics earlier, I do think that this song is quite dynamic. I think with the breakdown there, you get into those clean guitars, kind of like they've done before, and we'll see them do it again, where they pull back and the vocals get a bit quieter and a little bit more delicate, but then they explode into the ending here that where Claudio is yelling these vocals out over these more thick, distorted guitars. It really crescendos into the ending where he's he's yelling out these words um, for emphasis of what he's saying, as well as the guitars swelling and the entire song kind of crashing into this ending. And write me a child-like letter pretending At war here in Thursday Let's make this our last day And hope I'm a progressive rock that I personally like. Not that the song is so complex over a 15-minute suite where it just goes into different areas and leaves behind everything else, but everything seems to be moving towards something. They use the dynamics in this song to push and to pull into quieter bits, bringing it up again and bringing it down again so you feel what's going on in the song, but it goes somewhere. It ends with a crescendo of guitars, this wall of guitar sound, as well as the vocals swelling. Everything comes to a head at the end of this song, and I think it's great. 
choice of words but the way that claudio sings this ending the whole song has led up to this point musically where there's a crescendo of all the instruments while claudio is belting out these lyrics it really makes you feel it even if you don't know what's going on in the story you can hear this woman screaming to claudio you can make it if you believe so in the context of the song, Claudio is the one child who gets away and will pick up a lot of the story from his adventures from here on out in the rest of the Amory Wars saga. Now, the lyrics are really interesting. Like I said earlier, uh, he really has an idea of what he wants to sing. And I think that's contrasted with this type of stream of consciousness writing that he uses with this song. It's really hard for me to follow what's going on. Now, the beginning of the song starts with a door opening. So you get the idea that the song is taking place in a house. So that gives us a bit of a clue. But let's take a look at these lines. One in particular here. Unworthy unconsciousness. Why debate when the action's suppressed, then kill the acquitted? I, I can't seem to understand what is going on there. It sounds like there are parts of multiple conversations going on that jump back and forth between different characters to tell a story. To me, it's, it's pretty hard to keep up with. Um, although at the end, it does seem to clarify what's going on. Listen to this line. Inspected inspector. I think we found something over here. It sounds like it's the scene of the crime. Now, in the story, Josephine and Patrick come back to Josephine's parents' house, and they find the children dead, and Coheed and Cambria know that they have to kill Josephine as well. So they kill Josephine, and Patrick runs away. So the end of this song here is the scene of that crime, the death of Josephine at the hand of her parents. And can you imagine these detectives coming in and seeing two children who died by poison, but then one child who's bludgeoned to death after a bloody assault? I mean, it's, uh, again, it's pretty gruesome <laughs> what these songs are talking about. And then it ends with an instrumental interlude. Now, something about Coheed and Cambria is that they tend to use these interludes as a way to show the passage of time. So for this song, for the beginning of this album, we've seen that it has been about Coheed and Cambria killing their children. Now we're going to move forward from that. The theme that has been running through these first three songs is not going to be picked up for the rest. Now, the theme of death continues through this entire record. <laughs> it is quite a bloody record, but it's no longer focused on Coheed and Cambria who are doing the killing. And with that, I actually have to apologize to you guys. I did not expect that I would go 45 minutes on just the first four tracks, but I'm sure you already know this by the length of this podcast as well as the title that I'm going to have to split up this album into two different parts. Now, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you have any concerns, you can contact me a couple of different ways. We've got my email address is listening room 
podcast at gmail.com. I've got a Google voice number set up. That's 617-651-1116 if you want to text or leave me a voicemail. Or you can contact me on Twitter at my Twitter handle. It is at Broccolope, spelled B-R-O-C-C-O-L-O-P-E. Till next time, guys, remember, don't just hear, listen. Listen.